talk of peace amid acts of war. Does Vladimir Putin have a way out of Ukraine? From Facebook into the mainstream, the news outlets transforming the media landscape in Italy, and Pyongyang's top gun, Kim Jong-un, cruising on state-run TV in North Korea. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and examine how news is reported. A new front opened up in the war in Ukraine this past week, a diplomatic one. Negotiators gathered in Turkey for peace talks. But actions on the battlefields of Ukraine speak louder than words do in Istanbul. And just hours after Russia said it would halt attacks in northern Ukraine, bombs were falling on the city of Chernyiv. What Moscow presented as a goodwill gesture going into the negotiations, its critics have dismissed as a ploy to distract Russians from the setbacks their forces have suffered. To hear the Russian media tell it, there is no war in Ukraine, just a special military operation, and it's all going according to plan. Which is why the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is trying to speak directly to Russians to deliver some truths that they're not getting from Vladimir Putin and the news outlets the Kremlin controls. Our starting point this week is Istanbul. The peace talks in Turkey offered the victims of the war in Ukraine a rare moment of hope that failed to last. Moscow's pledge to pull back some of its forces in northern Ukraine turned into a broken promise that had a poisonous effect on the negotiations. Having started this past Tuesday, the talks adjourned for 48 hours and then resumed on Friday. The officials at the table are up against it. They represent leaders in Moscow and Kiev who face their own political realities and imperatives, how to sell any potential agreement to their own people. Vladimir Putin and uh, Russian state propaganda will find a way to claim the victory here. But it is an existential conflict between two men of different generations. Vladimir Putin wants to use time machine and get back in the uh, 70s or 80s with the good old Soviet Union. And the young president of uh, Ukraine, he uh, is supported by his uh, population to go with Ukraine into the European Union. So I don't think these, that these two different systems could, uh, could exist along with each other. Those areas of the Donbas under the control of the Russian army will probably stay under the control of the Russian army. The big question is what should be done with the north of Ukraine? So those territories that border with Belarus, will the Russian forces leave those areas? of Ukraine. If they do, then what happens to these territories? That's a big question for Zelensky and for the Kremlin, how to wrap up its achievements as a victory. One can detect in the rhetoric coming out of Moscow and Russia's shifting military tactics, certain clues about what an eventual peace agreement might look like. There's much less talk of regime change in Kiev, where Russian troops have stalled, and a greater focus on Donbass in eastern Ukraine, which Russia annexed in 2014. 
при огневой поддержке войск России освобождают поселок за поселком. According to the news channels that parrot the Kremlin's position, that means that this special military operation is unfolding as it should, despite Russian soldiers getting bogged down on the battlefield and the body bags piling up. Подводя итоги месяца, в ведомстве заявили, что все идет по плану. As long as they keep saying everything's going to plan, they're kind of able to spin this to the public whatever way they want. Um, the reality on the ground obviously is at odds with this, but we know from experience that this won't stop this propaganda narrative from moving forward. Well, they are just saying that everything is going uh, according to the plan. Like uh, our first phase of uh, so-called special military operation was to destroy military infrastructure of Ukraine. And now the next step is to liberate and, uh, and defend Donbass, which is absurd. If they wanted to liberate Donbass, they could have done it from the beginning, from the first day. But obviously, there was a plan to uh, take over big cities such as Kiev and Kharkiv, and it did not happen because Russia just can't do it. We all need to scroll back a few weeks in our news feeds and we'll see statement after statement from the Kremlin denying that it was ever going to invade Ukraine and mocking all the warnings that came from the West. In terms of its pulling back from Kyiv and what sounds like de-escalating, the only thing I can connect it to is just its absolutely poor, unexpected performance and the sheer scale of Russian casualties. Not that Russians are seeing that story told on their state-approved news outlets. The gradual suffocation of the media space there continued this past week with the disappearance of Novaya Gazeta, the Moscow-based paper whose journalism under already challenging conditions won its editor a Nobel Peace Prize last year, is the latest publication to shut down, suspending its operations until after the war. The Ukrainian president has been trying to get around Kremlin-approved news outlets, using social media to speak directly to Russians. Last week, Volodymyr Zelensky changed tack, doing an interview with three of Russia's few remaining independent media outlets. It was Zelensky's first encounter with the Russian media since the invasion. The news outlets involved have all been declared foreign agents by the authorities in Moscow, forced into exile, including TV Dodged. I don't think that we were tough on him. I don't think that we were soft on him. We're just asking obvious questions. <laughs> Some of the questions were specifically for the Russian-speaking audience. Because, for example, there's a rumor about biological laboratories there. I know that a lot of people in Russia, they believe in it because they hear about it on this state television. That's why it was important to ask him and to get his answer. It was the first time he had spoken directly to the Russian press since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, and there were some standout moments in that interview. Zelensky's comments on how Russian soldiers are treating their, their dead, for example. 
на убой послали и все. Вот как есть. He clearly understands that there's a divide between the people and the authorities in Russia, but at the same time, you know, he he wasn't um, trying to gloss over the fact that a lot of people in Russia do support this quote-unquote special military operation in Ukraine as they understand it or as it's being presented to them by Russian officials and in state media. What really stood out to me in their interview was his clear intention to talk to Russian viewers. He's already done a few addresses where he would switch from Ukrainian into Russian language to address Russian citizens specifically, but here he did this for an hour and a half. And his main message was really that Putin is the one who's doing the greatest harm to, to Russian speakers in Ukraine. Moscow's broadcast regulators banned the publication of the interview, although they could not stop it circulating on YouTube and the messaging app Telegram. Meanwhile, news outlets the Kremlin funds or controls were feasting on a speech that Joe Biden delivered in Poland when the American president went off script, wandering away from the words on his teleprompter and throwing in a little extra on Vladimir Putin. For God's sake, this man cannot remain powerful. U.S. officials spent the next two days quote-unquote clarifying the president's statement, insisting that the U.S. is not intent on regime change in Moscow. No one on the state-approved airwaves in Russia buys that. For years, Russian propaganda on television has been asserting exactly this, that this is America's goal. Its goal is to bring down Vladimir Putin and with it, Russian people. США используют Украину и всю Европу, чтобы заработать на вооружении и разрушить Россию. Russia hasn't framed the war as something that they're fighting against Ukraine, but they frame this as a war against the U.S., an ongoing war with NATO, with the West, all of whom, instead of sending their own soldiers to fight against Russia, are using Ukrainians to attack Russia. Judging by the rhetoric coming from the Kremlin, they truly treat Ukraine as a puppet state in the hands of the United States. And therefore, all the rhetoric and even the military gestures like bombing Western regions of Ukraine while Biden is in Poland, they're just symbolic gestures to show that we know what you want to do to us. We know your plans for Ukraine, therefore, we are ready to engage in this battle of gestures and it's not going to be decided at these talks in Turkey or wherever it's going to take place next. Sticking with Ukraine and the Chechen component, the leader of that Russian Republic, Ramzan Kadyrov, has ordered some of his forces into the battle where he is playing an active part in the information war. Tarek Nafa joins us now with more on the man they call Vladimir Putin's attack dog. On February 25th, the day after the invasion, this was the scene in Chechnya's capital, Grozny. Ramzan Kadyrov, wearing military fatigues in a pair of Prada boots, assembled his forces in a show of combat readiness. Since those troops were deployed to Ukraine, they've also invaded social media in some videos that were quite obviously staged. 
Here's the thing, though. The Chechens don't appear to have had much impact on the battlefield. They seem to be spending more time on their phones than in actual combat. And observers say that's their real purpose. Fighters in Putin's propaganda war. Kadyrov has always been preoccupied with his online image. He built a big following on Instagram, which he used to project power in Chechnya and demonstrate his usefulness to the Kremlin. That was before Instagram banned him. In this war, Telegram has been his platform of choice. We've seen videos of him alongside his troops, as well as public displays of piety, clearly designed for a Muslim audience. The Kadyrovci, as the Chechen leaders' forces are known, have a reputation for ruthlessness and brutality. They're responsible for abducting, torturing and killing Kadyrov's critics. Chechens who speak out have been punished, along with their families. Some are even paraded and publicly shamed on state TV. That's the reputation the Chechens have brought with them to Ukraine. But if their poor fighting performance and lacklustre propaganda efforts are anything to go by, the mythologizing of Kadyrov's men has been very much overplayed. Thanks, Tarek. It started out as a Facebook page, one that focused on a mix of what Italians call cronaca, general news, along with a lot of gossipy clickbait. In the decades since, Fanpage has grown into an award-winning investigative news site. It is one of the new digital-first news platforms gradually reshaping the staid Italian media landscape. They cater to a new generation, a tech-savvy one, that's disillusioned with legacy media outlets and their traditional means of distribution. Mobile-first outlets that are better at listening to young audiences and at speaking their language. The listening posts Flo Phillips now from Naples on a Facebook page turned news source that symbolizes a shift in the country's media. Dovevo crearmi un alter ego per le inchieste perché faccio questo lavoro da sempre, da quando ho 20 anni a Napoli. Dovevo quindi proteggere la mia identità. Ci è voluto molto sangue freddo. Io ero Laura e quando ero Laura ero sola. For six months, Gaia Martinietti a Naples-based reporter for one of Italy's most popular online newspapers, Fanpage, pretended to be Laura. Working undercover with the website's investigative unit, she took viewers on a journey into the world of anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists and Covid deniers. The result of that six-month project, three films entitled I Super Diffusori, or The Super Spreaders, an investigative trilogy that added to the list of journalistic exposés that have helped Fanpage make its name. Covering stories about political corruption and paedophile groups, scandals involving the Catholic Church, businessmen and criminals, Fanpage's investigative output has had tangible effects. If we want to pinpoint one moment when Fanpage acquired real nationwide significance, it was after the bloody money inquiry into the illegal trafficking of waste in Italy. There was an undercover investigation and it had a tremendous impact. It involved different political figures and led to a number of arrests. Questa è quella che abbiamo scoperto. 
something changed for us at that point. But Fanpage had existed before that, and it already had a readership in the millions. It's not just about undercover investigations. There's so much more to it than that. Traditionally, investigative journalism is the jewel in a news outlet's crown. And Fanpage has been very smart in making investigative journalism one of its specialties. Their investigations give it its high profile, and they're counterbalanced with more light-hearted content, celebrity gossip, that draws large audiences and brings in the revenue to pay for the longer-form content. Just think, in 2021, Fanpage became the fifth most popular online news outlet in Italy, with 19% of the market share. Fanpage got its start in 2011 as a Facebook page, and its editor-in-chief, Francesco Cancellato, still calls Facebook the site's big brother. But it's come a long way. In a landscape dominated by Italian broadsheets, familiar names like Il Corriere della Sera, La Repubblica, La Stampa, Fanpage has stayed away from print. There's no need. Its YouTube community, U-Media, equals that of La Repubblica and Il Corriere della Sera combined and its various platforms boast viewing numbers of more than 10 million. While its undercover investigative journalism strikes at the heart of Italy's political power, it is Fanpage's exclusive interviews and slickly produced videos that drive the daily hits. Cancellato says Fanpage is up there with the established newspapers, but with one major difference. Di sicuro so però qual è il DNA di questo giornale. Its DNA, unlike the majority of newspapers in Italy, stands out because our editor has no conflict of interest. And that means the paper can tell stories as they are. I believe this is what makes Fanpage different from other titles. It was true 10 years ago, and it's still true today. So does something as simple as Fanpage's location. Like legacy media outlets, the website has offices in the political capital Rome and the financial centre Milan, but its headquarters are in the south of Italy, here in Naples, a city known for its unemployment, underdevelopment and a reputation for organised crime. Fanpage is bridging Italy's north-south divide, offering journalists born and raised here the chance to tell stories from the south and give them a national platform. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Reporters like Gaia Martinetti, a native Neapolitan, who says she never thought she could make a career of journalism so close to home. Quando ho iniziato a fare questo lavoro, tutti quanti mi dicevano che non sarei rimasta a Napoli. Dovevo pensare di andare a Milano, a Roma, o addirittura qualcuno mi diceva fuori dall'Italia. Raccontami come essere una giornalista a Napoli. È una bella sfida perché questa città ha un materiale umano e storico che non trovi da nessun'altra parte. Napoli vuole essere raccontata, quindi ovunque ti giri trovi una storia. Ti faccio un esempio. Stavo tornando a casa, era circa mezzanotte, e mi sono trovata davanti a una stesa di camorra. C'era la polizia che ricostruiva la scena e questi bambini si sono avvicinati, mi hanno chiesto 20 euro per raccontargli cosa fosse successo. 20 euro? Sì, ovviamente io non gli ho dati 20 euro, però avevo il cellulare e ho ripreso questa scena e il giorno dopo ho raccontato quello che era successo ed è diventato il mio primo servizio per Fanpage. Martinetti joined Fanpage in her late 20s and found that most of her colleagues were of a similar age. In an industry traditionally made up of middle-aged men, new digital-first outlets, sites like Fanpage, Il Post and Open, tend to skew young. Buongiorno. 
Open is a youth-oriented online platform founded by one of Italy's most established journalists, Enrico Mentana. A few weeks ago, he posted a job ad in search of four new hires. Among the prerequisites, applicants had to be young. Mentana's idea was to offer young journalists a start in this industry. I wouldn't call open a journalism school exactly, but a kind of lab where we train new journalists. When we started our operations in 2018, Mentana would say to us, first, you need to learn how to bake bread. Three years down the line, I think he was right. Open has learned how to bake bread. We've managed to establish ourselves in the journalism industry as a reliable source of verified information with an in-depth presentation and fast delivery. Enrico Mentana is very experienced in and knowledgeable about the Italian publishing industry and he spotted a niche overlooked by traditional outlets. So Open emphasizes fact-checking and the debunking of fake news on social media. Similarly, Luca Sofri's Il Post concentrates on so-called explainers. And then, of course, FanPage focuses on investigations. These outlets have all been successful because they've honed in on a specialization. For younger, digital-only outlets out to compete with established media giants, such specializations can make all the difference. Lacking the legacies and reputations of Italy's mainstream newspapers, these mobile-first alternatives walk a bit of a tightrope. Balancing the need to feed older audiences news content in forms they are familiar with, while targeting their younger audience with niche content that speaks to them. There's a saying I like a lot, which is, new media, old values. It's true that mobile-first journalism has its own language, its own style, but the fundamentals remain the same, and those fundamentals are essential for open. I'm conscious that our goals are extremely ambitious, perhaps too ambitious to encompass all the diverse challenges we face. But hey, that's where all the fun is. And standing still has its dangers. As Fanpage can tell you, its audience might be on Facebook one year, TikTok the next. If there's one lesson Italy's old guard outlets can learn from the new ones, it's this. Adapt or die. Innovate or risk irrelevance and possible extinction. This is what really drives us, constantly experimenting, innovating and changing. I believe it is our duty, our mission, to bring about innovation to the media landscape in Italy. I don't feel I'm in competition with Il Corriere della Sera or La Repubblica. My real competitor is anyone who is more innovative than I am. Altrimenti questo mestiere muore. And finally, having skillfully avoided covering the news coverage of last week's Academy Awards ceremonies and the slap heard round the internet, we'll end with a short video which should be nominated for an Oscar of its own. The category would be Worst Performance by a Global Leader on Fawning State-Run Television while launching an intercontinental ballistic missile. That would be North Korea's Kim Jong-un, who officially disapproves of almost everything American, but who clearly has a soft spot 
for Tom Cruise in Top Gun, the leather jacket, the shades. And before you go after Kim for dressing up like it's 1986, keep in mind there's a Top Gun sequel coming out next month, and you know they'll be watching in Pyongyang. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.